Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. Good to see you. Hey, Jana. It's good to be here. We are back this week with a regular chapter reading of our current book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. In this week's reading, Hannah Arendt, you analyze chapter seven, race and bureaucracy. You will talk about Arendt's definition of race and bureaucracy as political devices and how the idea of racism as ideology emerged. Race as an escape into rootlessness and bureaucracy as a government of experts. I was thinking of another text by Hannah Arendt reading this chapter. The book is called On Violence. It's not a very long book, but she talks about violence also in connection to bureaucracy. And I'm just going to read a quote from page 81, and then I would love to chat with you a little bit about bureaucracy and bureaucracy today. She says in On Violence, the greater the bureaucratization of public life, the greater will be the attraction of violence. In a fully developed bureaucracy, there is nobody left with whom one can argue, to whom one can present grievances in whom the pressures of power can be exerted. Bureaucracy is the form of government in which everybody is deprived of political freedom, of the power to act. For the rule by nobody is not no rule, and where all are equally powerless, we have a tyranny without a tyrant. A great quote. Yeah. And so, yeah, my question would be bureaucracy and, you know, maybe talk a little bit about today and the government we live in today. That's a great, it's, it's an important point and, and one that's, you know, I think controversial to talk about because everyone loves to hate bureaucracy. And yet, you know, especially those of us who've gone to college and uh, maybe grad school and uh, think of ourselves as, you know, educated, there's a way in which we also love bureaucracy. The bureaucrats, the civil service, the people who um, work for the Environmental Protection Agency or the, you know, the the Education Department. They are charged by us with uh, running things according to professional standards, avoiding, you know, they're supposed to create an ethic of the bureaucrat, which is to be above partisanship and to apply things in, in a way that is rational and designed to appeal to our, our best nature. And it's often very unpopular with people. 
and and so people who don't like what bureaucracy leads to call it the deep state or call it a rule of experts and are often very critical of it. You know, I think you have to be able to hold both those ideas in your head, which is that bureaucrats are at once well-meaning idealist people who see themselves as trying to govern according to high ideals uh, in the best way possible. And on the other hand, bureaucrats represent a particular class or political interest, which is an interest of those who are the elite and want a rational, nonpartisan government. What I think is fascinating about the the chapter uh, in Origins and its connection to the quote you just gave us from On Violence is that in Origins, Arendt makes this clear. She says um, that bureaucracy is always a government of experts, of an experienced minority, which has to resist as well as it knows how the constant pressure from the inexperienced majority. That's what the bureaucrats do. It's a, it's, it's, it's a minority government because the intellectuals are always going to be a minority. And they have to, therefore, govern a bit in secret because if it were a democracy, the democracy would govern otherwise. And they have to learn how to, in a sense, suppress the popular or democratic opinion in the name of higher ideals. And thus, she says, the basis of bureaucracy is its inherent replacement of law with temporary change in decrees. Because we have to, in a sense, resist the democratically enacted laws in order to govern more rationally. You can see this easily when you're talking about a bureaucracy governing a foreign country, like in India, with the British governing India, because then it's obvious that the bureaucracy is, is this kind of elevated, violent, external minority governing majority. But in the quote you read from On Violence, she's turning it back on uh, a democratic country like the United States in the 1960s and saying, that as the United States is, is, is turning into a more centralized bureaucratic government, the rise of bureaucracy means that these non-elected, intellectually uh, idealistic, well-meaning uh, experts and bureaucrats are taking away the act of governing from American citizens in a way that counters the American idea of Republican self-government, small r, Republican self-government, and disempowers the people. That you can't just say, oh, well, that's all negative. Bureaucrats are all bad. You know, no, bureaucrats are doing this because they actually think they're, they're representing higher values. And yet, Arendt is very clear that if you believe in democracy and you believe in self-government, rule by bureaucracy is disempowering and can lead to enormous resentments by the people against the deep state, the bureaucracy, the civil service, whatever you want to call it. And and that tension is deep in her work from Origins up until her writings in the 1960s and 70s. In this book, in Origins, it's deeply important because bureaucracy is the form of government being used to implement imperialism. And it's a racialized bureaucracy in which a white European bureaucrats are empowered to govern in a secret and hidden way racialized majorities 
who are others in Egypt, India, Africa, etc. And that's what she's talking about in these chapters. It's, I think, humbling to think about how that applies to 21st century America today and other European and uh, liberal bureaucratized countries. We have an upcoming text seminar in January um, hosted by the Hannah Arendt Humanities Network, and we'll be reading Fanon's Black Skin, White Mass. And she also mentions Fanon in On Violence. And of course, in this chapter, you are talking more about race and racism. So I was wondering just briefly, um, would you distinguish Arendt and Fanon? And how are they different? How are they similar? in thinking about race, or what is to particular interest to Hannah Arendt thinking about race and racism? Well, I mean, Arendt does cite Fanon in, in On Violence, although she's not citing black skin, white masks. Yeah, the uh, wretched of the earth. She's citing the wretched of the earth. And in fairness, she's actually not really even citing the wretched of the earth. Um, she's mostly citing uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's introduction to the wretched of the earth. So, you know, a lot of people have 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 made a lot of the fact that she's criticizing Fanon, which I think she does to some degree, but is actually more critical of Sartre than of Fanon. The argument that she's critical of here is that violence is necessary for revolutionary change. And uh, Sartre's argument that we should justify violence in the name of revolutionary change. Arendt is, is raising a question about that. She wants to say that there may be times when violence is useful and can be mobilized in the name of, of, of revolutionary change. But she worries that more often than not, uh, the attempt to mobilize violence for good reasons whether terrorism or, or other things, will not be seen as a just resetting of the scales, but will be seen as violent and unjust and thus lead to more violence, not lead to the foundation of, of a new freedom. So that's, that's her worry. And to the extent that Fanon, which I think is a complicated question in Fanon, I don't think it's as simple as, as some people make it, to the extent that Fanon argues that in a in a colonial setting, violence is sometimes in the service of the uh, recapturing of dignity by those who have been looked down upon or or oppressed in a colonial setting. I think Arendt uh, understands the argument and thinks there's some sense to it, as she says. Violence can be useful and it can it can have these impacts, but when Sartre takes that and makes it a further argument and says, therefore, we should justify anti-colonial violence. She wants to make the argument that that's actually most often, more often than not, counterproductive, not not productive. Exactly what we're seeing right now in Israel and Palestine. I think violence leading to more violence. Yeah, I think I think you know that's that's the idea. I mean, I think there's this you know, and, and I think Fanon has been invoked, especially by those on the decolonialized left or decolonial left or anti-colonial left to justify the violence by Hamas. You know, I think you can, you can see it. I mean, it's hard for anyone to deny that argument 
in the sense that if you are oppressed and oppressed and kept down and and so um you know there's there's you, you have no access to a kind of human political life now we can get into an argument whether this is israel's fault or whether hamas's fault and it could be that hamas is actually the one who is oppressing the palestinians more than the in gaza and more than the israelis are and i don't want to get into that right now but all i'm saying is for people who are oppressed and so dehumanized whether it's by israel or by palestine you can understand the urge to violence that doesn't justify it and it doesn't justify it against it it's just you can understand it Arendt is simply saying in the essay on violence, you have to understand that violence is understood as, as either useful or not in the revolutionary attempt to establish freedom. And while many of these so-called revolutionaries want to justify violence, if you actually look at it nine times out of 10, it doesn't work. And that it may not be the best approach to uh, establishing uh, freedom. And I think in that way, yes, I think what you're seeing in, in the failure of violence on, by, on, on behalf of the Palestinians by Hamas uh, is pretty evident. Thank you, Roger. Thanks, Yana. And here is chapter seven. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. Really thrilled to be with you today for the virtual reading group. We're continuing to read Han Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. We are uh, about halfway through. We're in the middle of the second book called Imperialism, reading a chapter called Race and Bureaucracy. So just to remind where we, we've come from, the section on imperialism is the middle and I think core section of the book on totalitarianism. Imperialism is this form of government that, that seeks expansion, that blows past national borders, thus is going to be connected with the demise of the nation state and all limited political uh, structures. And it is about the elevation of power, the bourgeoisie as the new class in modern society that wants to simply acquire more power, more wealth, more control, and in doing so is willing to bring the state to, to in a sense, harness the state to serve as its, as, as its army in uh, both domestic and international affairs. And so this idea of imperialism as the constant expansion of power is at the very core of Hannah Arendt's thinking about imperialism as a source of totalitarianism. After this opening chapter on the bourgeoisie and power and imperialism, the next two chapters are on race. The first one, which we read last week, is on race thinking before racism. And the essence of that chapter was to remind us that race, the idea that there are, that we're not all one human family, that there's not an idea of humanity, and thus that there's a competition amongst people in this sense of a bourgeois striving after power, means that society is a war of all against all, not only of individuals against individuals, but also of races versus races. And 
in such an idea, it is only natural that in the competition amongst races, it will lead to a kind of brutality and horrific new forms of governance. That said, she says there in that chapter, there's a difference between race thinking and racism. And that difference is summed up in the line on page 183, where she says there is an abyss between the man of brilliant and facile conceptions and man of brutal deeds. It's one thing to think that you don't like Jews. It's one thing to think uh, that the French are lower than the Germans or the Germans are higher than the French, uh, as Gobineau did. But it's another thing entirely to say that these differences, these dislikes, these prejudices justify slavery, torture, expulsion, uh, genocide, etc. And so she defines racism as opposed to simply race thinking as an ideology that is uh, a political weapon of imperialist politics, namely that racism is what justifies and explains the brutal nature of the subjugation of foreign peoples. Racism is thus a political weapon or an ideology uh, that underlies imperialism. And this is what she, how she ends chapter six on race thinking before race, before racism, where she says that, you know, race thinking is not the same as racism. However, it was a powerful help to racism. And if it hadn't existed, it would have to be invented by imperialism in order to justify imperialism. That is the, the driving force here. And now in this chapter seven, she divides it into two parts, race and bureaucracy. And the point is that these two parts, race and bureaucracy, are both devices for political organization. Race, as a principle of the body politic, she says, is discovered in Africa uh, during the scramble for Africa. What does that mean? It means that race in the scramble for Africa becomes a substitute for the nation. We no longer think of a nation as a group of people within a geographic uh, entity. We begin to think of instead races that, of course, are transnational and imperial and thus always opposed to national limitation. And race becomes the organizing factor. And so on 185, she writes that race was the emergency explanation of human beings whom no European or civilized man could understand and whose humanity so frightened and humiliated the immigrants that they no longer cared to belong to the same human species. Now, there's a number of things important to realize here is that she doesn't think that the race, that race in Africa was a race based in skin color. And this is an important and, 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 and difficult point at times. I'm not saying skin color was completely irrelevant, but she, she comes to believe that, that what really drove the idea of race in this, in this period was that certain people, certain peoples, uh, seemed to, to not have a kind of human world. And this applied in her reading as much to the Boers, the, 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 the Dutch Boers who were in Africa, as it did to the African tribesmen. And in, in this sense, race for her 
you know, is not, is not in any way uh, a matter of simple color uh, or religion. It has to do with a way of imagining certain people as, as subhuman, uh, as not having human qualities. It can get attached to color and religion, but it is not for her of its essence. And so one element of, of the div- new device of imperial political organization is race instead of nationalism. And that is important because it's, it, it frees governmental organization or political organization from any kind of national limits. The second is bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is a principle of foreign domination. The keys to her understanding of bureaucracy is that it's a substitute for government. The administrator rules by reports and in secret. It's an organization uh, in the great game of expansion where every bureaucratic entity, whether it's Egypt or South Africa or, or India, is simply a stepping stone in a further game of conquest. So again, connected to the political organization of imperialism. And she says that race and bureaucracy arose independently, one in Africa and one in Asia, but both, uh, she thinks, prove central for the modern emergence of imperialist rule and totalitarianism. The chapter is divided into three parts. The first is called The Phantom World of the Dark Continent, and it looks primarily at uh, the rise of race. The second part is Golden Race. It adds to this this understanding of of race through a, a kind of metaphorical connection with the discovery of gold, metaphorical and also material connection with the discovery of gold. And then the third is on the imperialist character, uh, which focuses on bureaucracy. In the first part, the phantom world and the dark continent, the, the key initial insight is that the people who went to Africa were superfluous men. Now, this is a, a word a characterization she uses a lot in different in different ways. What she means here is they weren't the old kind of adventurers, right? They weren't the kind of adventurers who went on their own looking for adventure and had a kind of nobility to them. These were often prisoners uh, who had been shipped there, or they were people who had been spit out by civilization. They were what she calls, citing Conrad, living abstractions and witnesses of the absurdity of human institutions. They were, in a sense, the scum of the earth, but as that scum of the earth, hollow to the core. Again, she's, she's quoting here Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. There's a lot to be thought about into what extent it makes sense to make a historical, theoretical argument that she's making based on a novel. Because there are other sources she uses about South Africa, but clearly the heart of darkness is one of the most influential. The point is that these people who were largely the refuse of capitalism, who you know had very little money and nothing to lose, and they believed in nothing, she thinks are the people who ended up in Africa. And she says, expelled from a world without accepted social values, they had been thrown back upon themselves. And still had nothing to fall back upon, except here and there, a streak of talent, which made them as dangerous as Kurtz, uh, one of the central characters in Conrad's novel, if they were ever allowed to return to their homelands. They were a game for anything from a pitch and toss to willful murder. 
So these are the people that she sees as um, arriving in Africa for the scramble for Africa. And, and they encountered, uh, again, citing Conrad, the world of native savages. They confronted human beings who did not have political institutions like they were used to, didn't have stories and, 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 and kind of a human world that they were, that they imagined. They were nomads. They were, got, you know, they were in tribes. They weren't in, in modern political institutions. And thus they were easy to see as inhuman. They were easy to see as prehistoric and thus a kind of kinship with the inhuman. Again, this is a lot citing Conrad. Yet they were also human. And they, when they were encountered by this group called the Boers, who were this sort of small group that had been left in South Africa and grew, the Boers themselves came, she thought, to mimic the tribes in South Africa. They became isolated from European history. They were on bad soil, so they had to have cattle ranches and they lived far from each other. And so they, in a sense, lived in, in small clans and enslaved some of the locals, but, but basically had no political organization. And anytime they were confronted by uh, the need for politics, they just packed up all their things, left, and trekked out further into the countryside of Africa. And so on 192, she says that what the white Englishmen encountered in, in South Africa was a fright, not because the people were of a different color than them, but because they seemed to be purely natural human beings who lacked a specifically human character. And she says this was as true of the Boers as it was of the Black South Africans, and that this was a fright of something like oneself that still under no circumstances ought to be like oneself. And this became, she says, the basis for a race society. Racism and a race society uh, emerges in the experience of an encounter with people who are at once like oneself and also so different. And she says that the word race has a precise meaning only when confronted with a kind of prehistoric group, a group that doesn't have any political or social characteristics that we associate with being human. And they behave like natural beings, not like human beings. And this was, she says, very much uh, what she thought happened in the encounter of this sort of white refuse, this these, these white criminals, these white superfluous men, when they entered into the sort of South African world. On 195, she says that racism as a ruling device was used in this society of whites and blacks before imperialism exploited it as a major political idea. Its basis, and of course its excuse, was still experience itself, a horrifying experience of something alien beyond imagination or comprehension. It was tempting indeed simply to declare that these were not human beings. Since, however, despite all ideological explanations, the black men stubbornly insisted on retaining their human features, the white men could not but reconsider their own humanity and decide that they themselves were more than human and obviously chosen by God to be the gods of black men. This is the encounter of people who she thought were 
seemed inhuman by others who then elevated themselves up to be like gods. And this, this encounter uh, is the essence of, of racism for her. She says that what made the Africans different was not the color of their skin, but the fact that they behaved like a part of nature, that they treated nature as their undisputed master and they had not created a human world. Now, you know, I'll just be clear, and I'm sure this will come up in, in the question and answer. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who look at this and say, oh my God, she has this very, how would we call it, you know, European or Western bias against the Africans. And, and she saw them this way. And, you know, it's very possible that that's correct. I don't think, I think what's important to understand is she's here talking about the way the white superfluous men encountered and engaged the Africans, you know, and so she's trying to understand their perspective and how a race, she's trying to understand how the idea of racism as a political weapon in the name of ideology emerged. And so she's trying to understand the way the people who invented racism encountered the idea of race in Africa. And, and that's the that's the argument that's 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 being made here. It's actually quite similar to her attempt in the book Eichmann in Jerusalem to understand Eichmann, to understand what it is that led someone who seemed like a regular bourgeois uh, working person to end up being a genocidal murderer. There's a kind of empathy in the sense of a trying to understand it from their perspective. And that's what's going on here in, in this chapter. Uh, it's not an excuse. It's just an attempt to understand what she's doing. What all of this leads to is that rootlessness, she believes, is characteristic of all race organizations, as she says on 196. So that race turns people into a horde, not only the black Africans, but also the white racists, the Boers. Um, she thinks they turned into a kind of non-political, non-national, racial horde. And thus, both the racists and the people who have been raced are characterized by rootlessness. The Boers, she says, were emancipated from work. They have a complete lack of a humanly built world. They abandoned their property and shrekt in the woods. All of this is an example that they are rootless and they are tribal. And so this rootlessness, she believes, is characteristic of, I said, all race organizations. And out of a hate of the world, racism can imagine its destruction. I think that's a really important insight that she's offering here, that it's not only the people that the Boers are racist against, but it's the Boers themselves that turn into nihilists that come out of a deep hatred of the world. They hated the world, the Boers did, and they had no use for institutions of the world. And I think it's fascinating to look, again, this is just a quick, a quick little bonus that we can come back to in questions and Q&A. But if you look at both on the right and the left today, whether it's the, the sort of, the, the sort of racial elements of the Trump MAGA movement, which is not the whole Trump MAGA movement, but the racial elements of it, there's a hatred of institutions, a desire to tear it all down. There's a kind of rootlessness in it. Similarly, I think on the um, ideological left, 
There is a, a rootlessness. There's a desire to tear all the institutions down, a hatred of power, a hatred of anyone who's in power. And, and these are both what I would call race institutions in, in Arendt's terms. So on 196 to 197, she can say the point is that no matter whether racism appears as the natural result of catastrophe, it is always closely tied to contempt for labor, hatred of territorial limitations, general rootlessness, and an atavistic faith in one's own divine chosenness. And so that's how she imagines uh, rootlessness and race as it emerges in the scramble for Africa. The second part on gold and race is, is a fascinating inquiry into a number of questions, um, including the economic foundations of this, the way that imperialism abandons capitalism and the idea of profit, the way that mob leaders uh, in Africa, like Carl Peters, just simply decided that they wanted to be, you know, these were the scum of the earth in her view, and they decided they wanted to become a master race, and they simply declared themselves a master race. And she says this was, in a way, the model for for the Nazis. There's also a, a very interesting section in this section on race and gold on the Jews, uh, the Jews who were not the main imperialists here, didn't own much, but they were the financiers of it. And the way in which the Jews were driven into the center of this race society and singled out by the Boers from all other white people for special hatred. So even though the Jews uh, were there as financial instruments of of Europeans, they became racialized deeply and quickly by the Boers. The third and last section of this of this chapter is bureaucracy and the imperialist character. And she says, if race was discovered in South Africa, bureaucracy was discovered in Egypt, Algeria, and India. The point she wants to make here, and I think this is one of the more interesting chapters or sections of the of the book, is that race is an escape into irresponsibility from human worldliness and having a home. Race is an escape into rootlessness. It's an escape from the fellowship of man. Bureaucracy, however, is the opposite. Bureaucracy is a taking up of a responsibility that no man can bear for another to rule an inferior. And this is really important for us to understand and to think about. Bureaucracy, the rule by experts, the rule by offices, bureaus, offices, the rule by reports, is the way we rule over inferiors. And she's going to look at it here uh, within the context, obviously, of imperialism. But you can't today, in the 21st century, read this and not think about all the different populist revolts against expert bureaucratic rule, whether it's in the EU or the United States or the UN or corporations. There is a, a real feeling today that um, people are losing uh, or being ruled by experts who think of them as inferiors, as, as deplorables or whatever you want to think of it. And Arendt's analysis of the rule of bureaucracy as a taking responsibility for others who we think of or who the bureaucrats think of as inferior to them is, is a powerful analysis and indictment of, of a lot of modern ideas of government. To the extent that she sees bureaucracy as a, a substitution for and, and an attack on Republican or Democratic self-rule, this is an important chapter in her larger political thinking as well. 
She says that bureau- on 207, she says bureaucracy is a consequence of that administration by which Europeans had tried to rule foreign peoples whom they felt to be hopelessly their inferiors and at the same time in need of their special protection. It was the result of a responsibility that no man can bear for his fellow men and no people for another people. There are a couple of models of the bureaucrat that she that she talks about here. One is the importance of legends, you know, the white man's burden, and the and the and the and the uh, example here is Rudyard Kipling, the idea that uh, these bureaucrats come over from England or Europe to India or Egypt and and rule for the good of the natives. Uh, and she says whether this is e- this is either hypocrisy or racism doesn't matter. It didn't prevent many of the best Englishmen from shouldering this burden, right? You know, it is hypocrisy and racism, or one of the two, or both. But still, there were many that had these ideals, and and they attract many of the best men who actually try and rule in the best interest. One of those men is someone she calls Lord Cromer, or not calls, who she identifies as Lord Cromer, who ruled as a bureaucrat in Egypt. And started out as one of these young idealists, but by the end of his many year rule, she thinks had become another form of bureaucrat, a much more dangerous type. And he writes a, a, an essay or a pamphlet on the philosophy of bureaucratic rule. And she identifies six characteristics of bureaucracy that I think are really exceptionally interesting and important, both in, in the analysis here, but also in our thinking about government today. The first is that the bureaucrat is led by a sense of sacrifice for backward populations and a sense of the duty to the glory of Great Britain. Uh, so it gives birth to a class of officials who have the desire and capacity to govern. And I think you see that still in many uh, examples of bureaucracy. I mean, just to, again, an aside, but one I think is very important, when in the first impeachment trial uh, a few years ago of Donald Trump, of President Trump, one of the great moments was when a number of bureaucrats uh, came out and testified about their doing their duty and they're trying to to lead a bureaucratic uh, world that was above politics and that was seen as as doing you know a sacrifice uh, you know a, a service to the country and, and and this is the first element of bureaucracy the second uh, is that it offers the bureaucrat acts with personal influence without legal treaty. The idea being that because the bureaucrat rules a foreign population, they have a lot of personal authority and they're often given the authority whether to act or not. Now we think, oh, well, no, the bureaucrat has to follow rules, but the bureaucrat has an enormous amount of discretion about which rules to follow and how so. And, and that personal influence is, is a second part. The third is that the bureaucrat can alter uh, their rule at a moment's need. The whole point of a bureaucrat is that they can they're trusted to, to to deal with crises and deal with what happens and 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 sometimes have to rule without law. And the fourth is that they um, require highly trained staff who renounce ambition. The point is they're doing this for the good of the system. The fifth is a passion for secrecy. They don't they like to stand behind the signs. They don't like to be seen. They're not elected. They don't have to govern. They don't have to they don't have to campaign. They are the people who run things behind the scenes what people today derogatorily call the deep state. And sixth, um, what the bureaucrat gets in return is power. He can do what he will and what he needs. It's a government of experts. And this bureaucracy, she says, is always a government of experts of an experienced minority 
which has to resist as well as it knows how the constant pressure from the inexperienced majority. That's on page 214. In this sense, bureaucrats on 215, she says, are the instruments of incomparable value in the execution of a policy of imperialism because they degrade men, the bureaucrats, into mere instruments. Bureaucrats become instruments, but they become instruments in a kind of government of experts that executes a policy uh, of imperialism without regard to legal limits and without regard to moral limits. And so at the basis of bureaucracy as a form of government and of inherent replacement of law with temporary changing decrees lies, she says on page 216, this superstition of a possible and magic identification of man with the forces of history. And this is the key thing. The bureaucrat acts outside of law in secret and the bureaucrat thus can govern in accordance with the trends of the time, the forces of history. They, they can like, and, and here she, she, she gives an example, that the bureaucrat is sort of like the secret agent who operates in the dark uh, behind the scenes. And the example here is, is, is Lawrence of Arabia, who um, started again with great boyhood ideals as an adventurer but eventually gave himself over to being simply a pawn in the great game run by the British Secret Service. When Lawrence of Arabia tries to understand this at the end of his life back in England, he understands that he, what, what made him effective was simply that he allowed himself to be a, a force that helped push the way that the British were pushing him, that he pushed the right way. And he says, I'm still puzzled as to how far the individual counts a lot, I fancy, if he pushes the right way. The point is, he becomes part of the secret forces of history. And because he works in secret as a secret agent or as a bureaucrat, this bureaucrat subordinates themselves to, you know, secret forces, the rise of imperialism, the rise of capitalism, the rise of socialism, the rise of Nazism. The, the bureaucrat is a functionary who believes that he is part of a system that is pushing the right way. So if you believe you're part of a, a communist bureaucracy that is in the end doing justice, you can operate outside the laws in order to um, push it in that direction, even if it might mean breaking a few eggs to make an omelet. You know, I think there's an analogy today with those who are involved in what we might call the ideology of identity politics or DEI, who are willing to be bureaucrats, push the right way, have a, you know, okay, yeah, maybe there's some injustices, but overall we're making society a more just society. And this kind of bureaucrat who subordinates their individuality and individual decisions to a kind of become a functionary in the advance of an ideological system, a political ideological system, uh, is what Arendt here thinks of as the combination of race and bureaucracy. Race is what creates, justifies the bureaucratic rule of experts over inferiors, of bureaucrats over subject populations. And that's the way that imperialism, racism, and bureaucracy are tied together in these first three chapters of 
this book on imperialism. All right, I'll stop there. Hey, Roger, let me just for a moment, this is Bill, I'm jumping ahead of the line because I think that everyone is meeting the book at a very high level. It is a damn hard read for a person of color right now because I don't think that she is ever writing to me. I don't think that, I understand that she's a German Jewish woman of a certain generation, but this about the, the project of us being on this reading group and reading this, quote, great book is put into question when you realize that there is a tone deafness at the heart of some of the analysis. But that's all I would say. It is, uh, and I, I know that, she, I, like I've said this to you before, who, this book was published in 52? Did uh, anyone, 51? Did anyone ever, uh, anyone in the, at the New Yorker, any, any of her circle, ever talk about the language in the book and the way that we are now? And I find that kind of shocking. Yeah, it's a great, the book is of is use, but there's something that I really have to struggle with uh, when I have to take her at face value, and that, more than that, take her into my head and heart. So enough said. I don't even know what, that, what I'm saying right now is that I just think that we all got to take a breath and say that we're looking at something um, that is kind of awesome because Hannah was a product of the very thing that she is critiquing. And she's smart, but she missed some things. And there was, seemed to be nobody around her at that time who would say, hey, girlfriend, yeah. have you thought about this, uh, what you're saying here and how you're saying it? That's all. I apologize for jumping the line, uh, but, uh, but this is, uh, it's very difficult read for some of us uh, who are people of color. Yeah, I can, I, but all I can say is I am, you know, I am not committed to strongly, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in attacking her or defending her on the questions of, you know, the language, right? I hear what Bill and, and Bob are saying, right? Which is that the language is, is difficult and, and off-putting and, um, I, I, you know, maybe worse than that. Uh, I hear what Rachel's saying, you know, which is that it's channeling and this and that. You know, I I think that there's a legitimate argument on both sides there, uh, and I and if someone says, "Look, the language is is off putting to me, and I can't read it," I hear that too. All I can say is what I've tried to say, and what I think is important is that if you can move beyond this question, what she's saying about racism and bureaucracy are incredibly smart and brilliant and helpful in understanding both the origins of totalitarianism, the emergence of imperialism, the emergence of racism, and so much of our politics today. So none of that is to, you know, uh, I'm not here saying we should excuse every use of every word. And I think Bill's absolutely right. She didn't you know, I think people, I think she used words um, in ways that she didn't realize sometimes the way they would be read 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years later. You know, I mean, even in the very beginning of the chapter, the, the footnote, you know, where she says, an even worse case, of course, is that of Leopold II of Belgium, 
responsible for the blackest pages in the history of Africa, right? Where she's criticizing Leopold for his racism, but uses the word blackest pages, obviously, you know, in her mind as a kind of colorful uh, metaphor of sorts. And yet, you know, I think today we read these things differently than, than she would have. Um, Roger, did she know black historians? She never cite any black people. I'm reading this with somebody recently who was not a fan, and yeah. I'm trying to make him a fan. He said, well, hey, man, huh? what is this? She, she's, she, every, there's, black people are a subject. They are not really. I know it sounds like in the knee-jerk era, but everybody wants to be uh, their identity to be made center. But there is something problematic in a text like this, that she could not find a black intellectual to quote. So she could not. I mean, they, they didn't exist. Yeah, well, first of all, um, you're right. I mean, I, we we've talked about this in other reading groups. I mean, I think it really wasn't until she read James Baldwin's "The Fire Next Time" in the New Yorker that she began engaging with um, black writers. Right. Um, so let's just say that's and that's not until I forget the exact date, but you know, at least. 17 or 18 years after this, if not more. And so, you know, let's stipulate that there is a lacunae in her, in her intellectual firmament around black writers and black intellectuals. You know, I don't know. And, and I say this in utter innocence. I don't know how many black intellectuals were writing about the beginnings of imperialism in 19, in the 1940s. Uh, my guess is not that many, but again, I don't know. I think she read the main texts on imperialism that were in existence at the time. She, I, I will say this, I mean, she's incredibly clear-sighted about the racism of Europe and of the Belgians. I mean, you know, I mean, I think compared to most people who wrote on this at this time, you know, you, you're talking about someone who is much more clear-sighted about the utter inhumanity and racism of the period but she's relying on uh european and uh you know conrad is a big part of it i mean yes she's 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 not reading black historians i'm not sure who was there i'm not sure who she was supposed to have read but uh which isn't an excuse it's just saying you think you're right i don't think that takes away from the power of her argument right i mean again this is one of those situations where instead of saying Oh, you didn't cite this or you're this. Look at the argument, right? I guess what I what I want to say, Bill, and to everyone and, and Bob is the argument to me is powerful. Um, I'm happy to have people say, you know, we can make the argument better, or I could critique the argument. I acknowledge that some of the language is language that today people find and find maybe rightly problematic. But to me, that's not the core of, of why I read her text. Uh, and I think um, what's important for me is to try and make sense of the argument and to simply say, oh, well, she didn't sign, cite black historians. I don't know. I mean. No, you sense that she didn't have a black audience and she did not know how to have a black audience. And poor thing, most right, white writers of the time didn't know that. Yeah, so I, think that I, got, I got it. Cutters and black. Acknowledge that she's a brilliant and let's move on. 
I would well, challenge you and, the, and people on this phone call, if she handled issues, language around Judaism in another context, and the way she's handled this language, I think that the conversation would grind to a halt. Well, no, because uh, I think there's a lot of people, Bill, who say that she does the same thing. I mean, she she talks about, you know, East European Jews and sometimes does it in very much, very kinds of similar language to what she's talking about here about tribes in Africa and also in America or Australia. So I think you're absolutely right. She comes at this with in in talking about Jews, but also talking about um, blacks and Native Americans, you know, or Native Australians in a kind of with 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 prejudices of her times. I have no problem criticizing her for that. And I'm not trying to say I think it's wrong to say I'm saying cut her some slack and move on. That's not my point, or at least not what I hope is my point. Um, my point is, I'm happy to, you know, if people, I'm happy to get into those conversations. I'm, we're in one right now. But I guess what I'm more interested in is not move on, but there's actually an argument here that is um, worth considering that, I'm, that I think she's made that I'm trying to, to, to bring out that I think is actually helpful for people today in 2023 who want to talk about race or want to talk about imperialism or want to talk about bureaucracy. And I think there's very few people of any race or any color or any time period who've written about it with as much insight as she has. And while the language can be off-putting, the arguments need to be taken seriously for what they are. That's my argument. No, you've, you've stated it many times, and I, I, please, I don't know. I cannot stop. I don't want to. I'm trying to get to what the point of the book is as well. I want to get past this because this book is supposed to be helping me understand the bigger question right now is how uh, we come into a world that's ever more uh, authoritarian or totalitarian. So yeah. that's what I say. Cut her some slack. Move on. Know how to read Hannah Arendt as a Black person. Take a breath. There will be times when it will feel like you are you're ignorant, uh, not ignorant. You're invisible, but that's a lot of the experience of of, of being of, of what we've learned about publishing and so on. Was a, a figure some years ago I read: ninety five percent of everything that was published is really for white audiences. That's just the truth. I so, think that's a fair. I, I think that's a completely fair comment, and um, and make but but irrelevant in the terms of what your goal is here. Let's listen to the woman's argument and see if we can um, move on. Uh, so thank you for the indulgence. Uh, I I I think that I, I because of my black skin, I am not able to say to be neutral. Now that's my problem, right? I should be able to be neutral, and that is always the challenge in my art world and in the world right now want to play with the big boys and girls and intellectual you've got to get out of your race you've got to get out of your sexuality you've got to put all that aside and let's just deal with the with the argument which is good it's a good exercise yeah thank you roger uh thanks bill great job thank you very by the much. way for those who haven't seen it bill's new show night watch down at the uh perlman center is fantastic and i highly recommend it to anyone who uh, has the chance to see it in new york I'm so enjoying reading this book after reading her other books and coming back to it. Um, I think, 
you know, I'm equally, I read those sentences that Bob brought up over and over again, trying to place them. Um, and I don't think she would want us to not be outraged by those sentences. I think her, what we're trying to do is, you know, understand that abyss that you brought up to begin with. Like, we're crossing with her from um, facile conceptions to bestial deeds, right? What'd she say? Um, brutal deeds and active bestiality. And she uses language very differently in all of her books. I actually feel like she's very consistent in how she defines things, but she's always looking at things from a different perspective, almost like she's turning around her hand, looking over it. And in this book, almost all the language, all the perspectives are taking us on this trip across that abyss, uh, that abyss of, of, uh, to bestiality. And I mean, I, I could tie it, I kind of wanted to tie it back to anti-Semitism in the beginning of the book, um, just talking about uh, the book in very general terms. Um, that whole first chapter of anti-Semitism goes from the humanity of people, basically that we can dislike each other, we can hate each other, we can hate Jews based on what they do, based on, say, Judaism, you know, whatever, because we light candles or whatever we do, or we're bankers. Um, that whole chapter drifts to the internal, not to just what they do, to what they are. So, like, that that difference between crime and vice was very important. That it was crime is something we do and we can be punished for. Vice is something that's inherent. And then it goes further than that to something we didn't do. So, to the Dreyfus Affair, Dreyfus affair he didn't do anything, right? He was just, he was maybe too high up and he was a Jew. So, that was really about Jew hatred. And that, and that chapter seemed really important in that to end, I mean, the Dreyfus affair seemed really important in that chapter in that it didn't become instrumentalized. So it was an instance of Jew hatred, but it didn't become militarized. And now we're getting in imperialism into the part where racism is becoming instrumentalized. And I find it extremely upsetting and also just um, really interesting. And some of it in terms of what's going on in the United States. One sentence I wanted to return to in particular on page 206 um, was that South Africa's race society taught the mob the great lesson of which it had always had a confused premonition, that through sheer violence, an underprivileged group could create a class lower than itself, and that for this purpose, it did not even need a revolution, but could band together with groups of the ruling classes. That, um, that seems like something I thought that the Nazis also learned from the United States, isn't it? I mean, yeah. she seems to stay away from the United States in this, which is which is maybe a question I have. You have like, to remember, she first of all, she wrote much of this book in the early 1940s when she had just come to the United States, and I don't think she knew much about the United States. You know, she was largely a European thinker, but you know, and and I think this fits with some of what um, Bill was saying as well, right? Which is her writing and her her reference or points of reference are still European. I mean, most of the sources are European, and it's certainly not black writers or an intellectual tradition. I mean, to the extent that there were writers on this topic, I don't know. There must, there may have been, but I just don't know. She certainly doesn't cite them, so she's very much in the in a, in a frame. But I think Ken, you're at, you know, it's important to, to end with this because I think you you brought us back to what I think is important here, right? The the argument is that race does emerge in Africa. Uh, in this idea that uh, a class of people, even a lower class of people, can emerge as a mob 
in which through sheer violence, they can create another group even lower than themselves. And they can do so uh, for political reasons, namely not ultimately for racial reasons, right? I mean, and I think this is this is like one of the most important points. I mean, today, more and more African-American writers are making the same point. Ibram Kendi makes this point and many others. Uh, Kenan Malik makes this point very clearly in his recent work. And I just had a conversation with him about this at the RN Center a couple of weeks ago, that race doesn't begin in hatred. It begins in justification of political acts. And and what she and that's what she's saying here. What the next chapter, right, on the on on the pan movements, which we'll read in in our next reading group, which is in two weeks, um, is going to argue that the anti-Semitic pan movements, the pan-German, pan-Slavic movements in Europe, take this idea of racism that emerges in Africa and applies it to European imperialist movements and that it switches the group that is sought to be argued against from you know African groups or or native Indian groups in India or Egypt to Jews and they take this invention that invented in Africa and begin to apply it on the continent where the group they applied against is is Jews if you understand the breadth of this argument, I think you realize the the power of this book and 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 how it's trying to really look very deeply to understand the rise of totalitarianism in in, in Germany and and the Soviet Union. And I think that's a a, a, a powerful and worthwhile uh, uh, inquiry. We've gone over a bit. I apologize to keeping you guys, but thank you all very much. Um, have a very happy Thanksgiving, and I'm sorry I won't see you for two weeks, but I look forward to seeing you uh, when we do reconvene and reading the Pan Movements chapter, which is really, really where she begins now to take us from this, this, this kind of three chapter deviation right into imperialism in in Africa, in India, in Egypt, and 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 bring us back to 20th century Europe and the rise of anti-national imperialist movements that take the idea of racism and transpose it into anti-Semitism and use that as a political weapon for their own imperialist political aims. And that's what we'll be talking about in two weeks, in three weeks, I guess. Thank you all very much. Enjoy reading Hannah Arendt and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>